Nyhetsveckan med Ingrid och Maria. Hello everybody and welcome to a new edition of Nyhetsveckan special Newsweek special number 41. My name is Maria Selander and with me as always my friend and colleague Ingrid Kalkvist. Hello everybody. And of course our special guest Gonzalo Lira. Welcome Gonzalo. Good to see you both. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. It's our great to have you back on the show, uh, Gonzalo. Uh, we are dying to know what is going on with you in Kharkiv, Ukraine. You were, uh, uh, right after we spoke last time, you were arrested and uh, detained by the uh, security uh, police in uh, in Ukraine. Can you tell us what happened and how are you now? I can't discuss the specifics, but uh, yeah, it was, it was you know one of those things that happened in in wartime, and um, and right now I'm I'm in Kharkov, Ukraine. I have to re- remain here until my case is is processed, but I haven't heard anything about that. And and for the time being, I'm supposed to remain in Kharkov and in Ukraine until that case is is taken to trial or what have you. And so I'm not at liberty to discuss my case. Uh, mm. The basic uh, accusation is that I might be some sort of uh, a Russian agent or some sort of saboteur of some kind, but I'm quite obviously not. I'm just a middle-aged Chilean who has been living here in Ukraine since 2016. And uh, I have family here. And um, I've just been observing the war and, and commenting on it and 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 you know i got into trouble because of that basically yeah. but uh yeah i'm i'm fine thankfully uh health is good uh spirits are good and so we're just uh watching this conflict as it unfolds here it's quite extraordinary because it's it's become increasingly clear since the last time we spoke that this is really a conflict between the us/nato and russia using ukraine as a proxy for this mm. uh conflict and it looks like this is the first stages of a global world war because it seems very apparent that the next um, point of conflict will be the united states versus china and uh yeah that, that we are in the middle of world war three and uh, i have yeah. front row seats so ask me anything <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um when we talked last time you said that you thought this will um would end very soon in the I summer. So. And then what happened? Why has it taken so long? Well, it's it's gone on uh, for two, two specific reasons. Number one, the West has shipped a lot of weapons and a lot of gear and also a lot of manpower, let's not kid ourselves, mm. uh, to the conflict zone, number one. And number two, the West has 
incentivize the Kiev regime to continue this conflict to the very bitter end. There will be no negotiations of any sort. In fact, what we have discovered since we last spoke, I, I do believe we spoke in late March or perhaps early April. I've forgotten. Mm. But uh, at that, and in early April, um, it, it is emerging now that uh, the Kiev regime and Moscow had come very, very close to some sort of ceasefire agreement to end the conflict. And it was the West, embodied by Boris Johnson, who flew out to Kiev, or took a train to Kiev, rather. And he uh, said, told Zelensky in no uncertain terms that he could not um, back off. He had to continue with this conflict. So the Kiev regime is really acting as the puppet of the Western governments. And they are throwing away Ukrainian lives on this conflict um, that is increasingly obvious that the Russians are going to win. Even in the West, they're coming around to this conclusion mm. that anybody could have told them way back when. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's really despicable that it was the West that encouraged the continuation of this conflict. Because keep in mind, with this agreement that they came close to uh, reaching back in uh, March, April, uh, the war would have been over. And yeah. at this point, hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved mm. in so far as the lives of soldiers and in so far as the lives of uh, individual Ukrainians whose lives have been, you know, shattered and they fled to the West or fled to Russia, as the case may be. You know, this conflict would have been over and um, there would have been peace in this region. So but why does Zelensky go on with this? Where are the people? Are they not, uh, you know... Crazy about all the young men that are dying. Why? Why isn't someone kicking Zelensky out? Well, that's a very complicated question, but it boils down to the fact that uh, all the opposition parties have been outlawed in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, the press and the media is very tightly controlled, um, and and certain online venues, specifically Telegram, are very carefully monitored. And so as to nip any kind of uh, uh, opposition in the bud as quickly as possible and keep everyone uh, convinced that the war will be won and that um, the Russians will be kicked out of southern Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, and that Crimea will be retaken. That's been the standard line. And so most people um, are not aware of the true scale of the devastation. Um, I mean, they, they have, the people who have fled, uh, you know, they, they've they're, they're gone, of course, and outside, perhaps they might know, but inside Ukraine, they, they are not uh, aware. And of course, there are repressive measures to ensure that no opposition forms that could actually do anything about this. Right. So what do you think is the, the motivation of the West? Why uh, did they know from, from the start that things would uh, unfold this way? I mean, uh, uh, in my thinking, uh, the West had 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 a kind of uh, ha they they had a belief that, for, for example, the economic sanctions against Russia would work much better than they did, yeah. and 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 they had some kind of uh, vision that they could uh, break Russia. Um, yeah. What do you think? What, what is the motivation, and 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 what was well, the well, calculation? It's it's very simple. You know, when you go to the casino, right, and, and you go to the roulette table and you bet, you know, a uh, 100 euros on the roulette table and you lose it and you thought you were going to for sure win, you know, because you, you, you put your money on red and, you know, red hadn't come up on, you know, half a dozen spins of the wheel. And so you figure, you know, red is going to come up and you put 100 euros and you lose it because it's black again. 
uh, what do you do? You double down. You bet not just another 100 euros, but you bet 200 euros because you want to win, recover the money from the previous bet, you see? And you lose again. And so what do you do? You double down. You put not two, another 200 euros, you put 400 euros. And you keep doubling down on your bet, even as each bet loses, see? It's not more complicated than that. It's, it's, it's in human nature, it's human psychology, it's called the sunk cost fallacy, that you are unwilling to walk away from a bad bet. And you keep on doubling down, and that's what the West has basically done. And so at first it was, you know, oh, we're gonna send these Javelin missiles, and those didn't work. And so, oh, we're gonna send the M777 howitzers, and those didn't work. And then the HIMARS, and those didn't work. And now we're talking tanks, and now we're talking F-16 fighter jets. And they're not going to work either because the Zelensky regime had all that gear beforehand, lots of it, of uh, equivalent in terms of quality and, and ability. And the Russians destroyed it. And so yeah. you, you see the problem the West finds itself. It, it, it cannot walk away from this bad debt. It's, it's at the roulette table and it keeps losing. So it keeps doubling down and it can no longer walk away. But the, the only difference... Way it can walk away is lose everything yeah but the difference gonzalo is that it's not the west that are losing the money the people the lives they have a proxy so they let ukraine uh ukrainians be slaughtered while they don't suffer exactly that's the despicable part yeah that, that, that's the thing that cannot be defended by any stretch of the imagination you know they're, they're the the people of ukraine are the ones who are suffering Mm. You have to understand what has happened demographically to Ukraine as well. You mm. see, the, the country, there are various estimates as to how many people were in Ukraine beforehand. Let, let's take the standard Wikipedia number, which was roughly 44 million. Okay, Now, it's known by the United Nations Human Rights Commission that something like 15 million Ukrainians have left, left physically left the country. 15? 15, yes. Ooh. A third of the country. Uh, you know, 11 million have gone to uh, Western Europe and a few to the United States and Canada. Uh, another just shy of 4 million have gone to Russia. Now, of the people who remain, you're talking about roughly 9 million people who are in the areas that have been captured by the Russians. You, you want to call it conquered territory or occupied territory, it doesn't matter. This is just demographic facts, right? And so from the 30 million that you were left with, you discount another 9 million. Okay, so you're down to about 21 million or so uh, people who are left in Ukraine. Now, other people are coming to these similar figures by different methodologies, but the consensus is that roughly between, there's only about 20 to 22 million people left in Ukraine. Okay, mm -hmm. so the country is half the size it used to be before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and these people are suffering as never before because there are blackouts and the blackouts are because the Russians have destroyed the electrical infrastructure. They haven't destroyed the power stations. They've destroyed the electrical transmission systems. Mm -hmm. Now, the, they destroyed it for a very clear military reason, which was they wanted to cut the train lines because the trains in uh, Ukraine work on electricity. And so by hitting these electrical substations and destroying them, uh, periodically they do this, okay, just to make sure that they, those lines don't run so that they can't, the Ukrainian forces cannot ship men and weapons to the front lines, right? This, of course, affects the entire civilian population. 
A lot of people are saying that um, the Russians are committing genocide in Ukraine. This is far from the truth. This is an outright lie. Uh, the Russians have no intention or interest in hurting the people of Ukraine because they consider them brother people, just mm. as you in Sweden would consider Norwegians or Finns as brother people yeah. or, or Danes as brother people. And so they have no interest in harming them, but it, they are being harmed inevitably because the Russians are pursuing clear military objectives. Now, mm. the credible estimates uh, as to civilian casualties of killed civilians is roughly about 9,000 people, which is a huge amount. 9,000 people is, you know, 9,000 lives lost. Mm. But when you compare the number of soldiers who have been killed, it's a very, very small fraction. The Russians have been going out of their way not to harm civilian populations. Okay. And, and everybody who is honest about it knows that this is true. Now, insofar as the actual casualty figures, these casualty figures of the armies are catastrophic on the Zelensky regime side. The number that has been circulating, and it's been circulating widely from different uh, uh, from different sources, seems to be that as of late January, uh, the Zelensky regime has lost, killed in action, these are killed in action then, about 157,000. Yeah. 157,000 dead soldiers. And roughly, it's estimated that one and a half times that number of casualties that is wounded incapacitated now uh you're going up to about 240 215,000 men so altogether the zelensky regime has lost upwards of 400,000 men that's what they have lost and in a country of 21 million people uh you're talking basically you know what uh, my math is uh sketchy right now you're talking about um five percent of the population no, wait, uh, no more, but it doesn't matter. It's a huge number. And it's the flower of the nation because these are young, energetic men who would, you know, grow up to become uh, professionals, business people, doctors, etc. And they have been killed or, or wounded grievously and wounds that we'll never really recover from. And so it's, it's broken. Um, the the Ukraine nation that will emerge will be a broken and very sad thing because there's something else you have to keep in mind. Those 15 million people who have left Ukraine, uh, this conflict has been going on now. It's going to come up on a year's time now. And those people who fled, they have built lives for themselves in Europe or Russia. They're not coming back. No. So the Ukraine nation that remains will be a shell of its former self, regardless of whether they win, which they will not. Because the casualty figures I mentioned of 157,000 dead Ukrainian um, uh, soldiers, well, contrast that with the number of Russians who have been lost. Now, this is all Russians, that is, uh, Russian army, uh, Lugansk People's Republic Army, a militia, uh, Donetsk People's Republic militia, and Wagner forces and Chechen forces. Altogether, it's estimated that it is less than 20,000 men. So basically, we're talking about an eight to one ratio of of killed in action. The, for every one Russian killed, eight Ukrainian are killed. And of course, on top of that, the Russians have a huge army. They have amassed an army of well, there are various estimates at this time because it's a fluid number, but minimum six hundred and fifty thousand men are surrounding uh, Russian troops are surrounding Ukraine on the north, on the 
on the far east of it and on the south of it. And the Russians are clearly preparing for a very, very big offensive. I personally think that that enormous army that they have assembled is not actually for an attack. I believe it's an occupation force. Mm-hmm. And it is stationed there to occupy the entirety of Ukraine. And if Ukraine is left with a population of 21 million, a 600,000 man force would be more or less what you would need. Roughly, you know, one soldier for every 35 odd civilians. That's that's usual in terms of the number of soldiers you need to occupy a territory. Okay, so a lot of people right now are talking about a big Russian offensive and whatnot. I, I cannot speak for that, although a lot of people are saying that that offensive is going to come in the near term future over the next between couple of weeks and couple of months, but it's coming, okay? Because the Russians would not assemble such an enormous force unless they were planning on using it. You you don't mm. put that together just just to see how it looks. You use it, you put it together to use it, okay? And so um, it, it's clear that the conflict here has been lost and the Zelensky regime has bet it all on the town of Bakhmut. I'm <laughs> sure that your audience has been hearing a lot about Bakhmut. Well, this is a pivotal battle because you see, this has become attritional warfare. When we discussed, when we talked in, in April, see, the Russian strategy was very simple. It was to scare the Zelensky regime into capitulating quickly. That's why they went in with 190,000 men, which was very, very small. It was more like an expeditionary force. And they went in with the about purpose of scaring the Zelensky regime. This is what's become clear after the fact. Okay, At the time, it was very confusing, right? Now, this strategy, it worked in some areas of Ukraine and failed in others. It failed in Kiev, but it worked in the south. That's why the Russians were able to capture such a huge swath of territory in the south and southeast of Ukraine, because they went in strong as an expeditionary force. And the forces, the Ukraine forces that were guarding that area, they fled. They fled to the north. And so that's how the Russians were able to grab such a huge chunk of Ukraine territory, roughly 20% of the territory of the country pre, pre-war. Now, uh, but it didn't work in the north, in Kiev. And so the Russians embarked on negotiations and they came close, but then it was sabotaged by the West. And so the Russians over the summer basically decided, okay, we're going to have to grind this out. And so they withdrew their forces from the north and from the areas of Sumy and Chihuya, and they just started going into attritional warfare. Now, attritional warfare is basically when you just fight on and grind down the opposing armies. Okay, In the West, there's this fixation on holding territory. But in attritional warfare, which is what happened in the American Civil War, which is the best example of attritional warfare, you don't fight to capture territory. You fight to destroy the opposing army. Clausewitz mm. uh, wrote about this, that, see, wars are not fought to capture territory. Wars are fought to destroy the enemy. Once you destroy the enemy, you can do whatever you want with the territory. Yeah. yeah. So what has happened is that the figures that I mentioned previously, um, insofar as Ukraine losses compared to Russian losses, and the fact that the Russians have this huge army that they built on three sides of Ukraine, So basically what has happened is that the Russians have succeeded in this attritional warfare. They've ground down the Ukraine forces. Now, a lot of people say, well, why is the war going so slowly? Because this kind of attritional warfare takes time. It takes a lot of time. 
And the whole point of it is to destroy the opposing army. So you don't want to go fast because if you go fast, you might capture territory, but not destroy the opposing army. No, and this is this is obvious. But I don't understand why doesn't Zelensky and he solution or whatever his name is, um, the commander in chief. Why don't they see this? They just keep pouring these Ukrainian soldiers at the Russians, and then they're dying and dying and dying. It's it's stupid. Yes, it is. But the thing is, see, they're being told to do so by their Western masters. Mm. That's the long and short of it. Uh, because I'm sure that a lot of military officers in the Ukraine armed forces do not want this. They understand exactly what's going on and want no part of it. But they are being ordered. They are being told, look, you do this, you fight the war as we want you to fight it, or else we won't support you anymore. You have to keep in mm. mind that the Ukraine economy is in tatters. It mm. only exists because the uh, the um, Europe and the Americans are supporting it with money. Yeah. And, mm. and a lot of that money is, of course, being siphoned off by Zelensky and his little coterie of people. I mean, they're, they're all corrupt. Uh, and so, you know, they have no choice in this matter, the Ukrainians. They have to keep on fighting this way because the Americans have this incredibly idiotic notion that if they continue with this war, it will weaken Russia somehow. And the paradox is, of course, that the longer this war continues, the stronger the Russians get. Because what happens is that the people in Russia realize, hey, this is not Ukraine. This is NATO. This is the Americans. They want to destroy us. And, you know, the Americans do themselves no favors by so many of their think tanks openly saying that they want regime change in Russia and they want to break up Russia into smaller countries that the West can dominate. <laughs> and so the Russian people don't want that. And so they are fully in support of what Putin is doing and the way that they are carrying out this war. And so right. this, the, the Russians recognize that this is an existential war, that they have to win it. it it's not that they, they can win it or walk away. No, no, no. They have to win it. And they are going to win it. For them, mm -hmm. it's life or death. And they see it as such. And, and so, the, but the West insists that they can, uh, um, that they can weaken Russia somehow by continuing this conflict. And, and that's the mm. paradox. It only makes Russia stronger. It only makes the rest of the world realize that Russia is in the right in this conflict mm. and that the Western powers have created this situation, which has destroyed Ukraine. And a lot of other countries around the world want no part of such a thing. They don't want this to happen to them. And so it's isolating Europe and the Americans from the rest of the world. And this is a disaster oh. for the Western alliance but they don't seem to understand it. And the effects of it are, are going to be emerging over the next months and years. This really is a dagger in the heart of the West. And you in Sweden probably realize how your energy bills have gone up. Well, I don't know how your situation with Norway and, and energy is concerned there, but you're in, in the rest of Europe, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, in France, energy is through the roof, inflation is through the roof. Uh, the economies of Europe are in serious, serious trouble. German industry is, quote unquote, deindustrializing, i.e. going bankrupt, because that's what we're talking about. Whenever you hear the word Germany is deindustrializing, it's German bankruptcy of business, the backbone of European prosperity. Well, you know, it's because of the American policies. And the Europeans, to be very frank about it, were fools to have followed the Americans off this particular cliff. And it only shows now that Europe, for all intents and purposes, is just a series of vassal states to the American empire. You know, and so that's what's going on.
So where, what do you think is going to happen uh, next? I mean, in the near uh, future, um, you, you, you've said in your uh, video clips that uh, you, you believe we are already in World War Three, uh, but how do you think this is going to unfold? Will it end up being a like a new Cold War of sorts, or or what do you see happening? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, it, it's they, the Americans have essentially announced it by the year twenty twenty five. They want to go to war with China. I mean, a lot of officers and and, and reputable people in the American military are saying this openly that by twenty twenty five, that's when the war with China is going to start, and they, they should be prepared for a war by that date. And uh, insofar as Europe is concerned, well, you're in Sweden, and I assume that most of your audience is in Sweden. Okay, mm. so I can tell you this: the prosperity that you experienced pre-conflict, you will never experience it again. Yeah. And and your social welfare state, it will become unaffordable to you uh, within the next three to five years. You will not, you will simply not be able to afford it because European industry, of which you depend on, you in Sweden depend on. It's just not going to be there anymore. And so the demand for your manufactured goods and, and various services is just not going to be there insofar as Europe is concerned, because the rest of Europe is your biggest trading partner, especially mm. Germany. So you are not going to have the tax revenue to finance your social welfare system. And you in Sweden are going to have a lot of problems considering the fact that you have, I believe, one in 10 people in Sweden is foreign born. And that very large um, uh, population yeah. in Sweden, they are going to be very, very upset and they are going to start rioting and doing all kinds of things in Sweden. Or so, maybe you know, if we are lucky, they will just go home because there, there are no more subsidiaries. There are no more free uh, housing and all of that. Between traveling and fighting, fighting is easier. Oh. It's but, as simple as that. In this the weird thing is, Gonzalo, uh, and the, the the really the main reason we wanted to pick your brain today was uh, the fact that Sweden uh, has applied for membership to NATO and uh, to to both Ingrid and myself. This is a complete mystery why we would want to do that in a situation like this. Um, and we'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, what's well, going to happen with that whole? View, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. From the Russian point of view. Uh, neutral Finland and neutral Sweden made the lives of the Russians complicated because if they ever had, had a conflict with NATO, they'd sort of have to hop over these neutral states. But with Finland and Sweden saying that they want to become part of NATO and some foolish people in Finland saying that they even want to have nuclear weapons, NATO nuclear weapons on Finnish soil, you know, for the Russians, they're like, OK, you want to fight us? No problem. And, and quite frankly, and I don't mean any disrespect to uh, your Swedish listeners or your Finnish listeners, uh, Russia could roll up both countries in, in just a few weeks because the Russians have been very careful in Ukraine because they view them as fellow Orthodox Christian Slavs. Yeah. But the Finns, the Swedes, they're just foreigners. Mm. They don't care. And uh, and so, you know, this is a disaster for your countries. And mm -hmm. why did Sweden do that? Uh, I can speculate that they received enormous pressure from Washington to because they thought that the, in Washington, they thought that Sweden and Finland joining NATO would put additional pressure on the Russians. But it's it's not it's not scaring the Russians at all. I mean, see, the Russians, just about every Russian 
um, you know, has a grandparent or great grandparent who fought in the Great Patriotic War. Mm. And, you know, the, the losses were catastrophic. And so in a very real sense, the Russian people today say, oh, it's our turn. Yeah. It's our turn to have an existential fight against these crazy Nazi insane hegemons and their little vassal states like Sweden and Finland. And I don't mean any disrespect when I say that, but that's their point of view. And so they're, they're not going to hesitate if they see some threat coming from Sweden or Finland. If Sweden, for instance, or Finland were to do something incredibly stupid, like uh, block the Baltic Sea from uh, you know Russian ships, the Russians are just going to sink anything that Sweden or Finland or Estonia or whomever puts there to harm Russian shipping. I mean, it, they're, they're just not going to tolerate it. They're not going to put up with any garbage from... Uh, and especially the, the now when they see that things are going their way, that Europe is going under and the US might crash. And I heard Douglas McGregor, I think it was said uh, in an interview the other day that NATO could... If they managed all their soldiers from all the countries, they might keep uh, uh, come to like a hundred thousand men. Yeah, and Russia, or they have at least one and a half million men to put in a probably fight. more. Yeah, probably so more. I mean, because, this is all. Also, yeah, the, the Russians have said that they mobilized three hundred thousand men. I think that that's a lie. I think that they mobilized close closer to seven hundred thousand. Uh, but but that's speculation on my part. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I. I interrupted you. No, I I was just going to say too that uh, I think you might be right that the US put pressure on us because we have been sort of in the NATO for a very long time, but yeah. always under the under the cover, so to speak. But but now I think uh, you know the first. I think Finland was the first one to say that we want NATO. And then the Swedish prime minister, the former, the the lady, you know, Magdalena Andersson, she went to Helsinki together with a Mr. Wallenberg. And the Wallenberg family is our biggest, you know, globalist family. So he was... and. He, and they're always there when when the government or the royal family or do something so i think that it was they they ordered sweden to do it because the social democrats had said uh, i mean it was just like a couple of months before they applied uh, the um defense minister said we will never join nato not as long as I am the fine um, the defense minister, and then he said, "Okay, I changed my mind." <laughs> it serves no advantage to Sweden to join NATO. It serves no advantage to Finland to join NATO, and yet they did it anyway. But the argument here, I'm sorry, Gonzalo, that I interrupt you, no. but I have to say no, it before no, no, no. I forget it. Uh, the, the 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 argument is that if Sweden Finland do not join NATO, then the Russians could show up on our doorstep tomorrow. You know, and, but but my no question to you is, would they? Would they? No, exactly. Does Russia have an interest in Sweden or Finland? No, and I'll explain why. Because the Soviet Union was an empire, and it went out and and did capture uh, foreign peoples. And that was a very bitter experience for the Russians as a people, because these foreign people that they uh, captured became an enormous drain on the Russian people. And so Putin and the current regime in, in the Kremlin, and, and not just them, but also the people who are coming up, they recognize that having an empire is far more trouble than it's worth. 
And so they're not interested in, in conquering foreign peoples. They have no interest. And the Finns and the Swedes, of course, are a foreign people. Mm. The Russians have no interest. The Russians do have an interest in commerce, in, in selling goods and services, sure. But in terms of actually conquering Finland or Sweden, they're not interested. Okay, And there was a documentary that uh, Oliver Stone made of a series of interviews with Vladimir Putin. I would suggest that you watch them. They're on YouTube and they're readily available if you if you go look for them. There are a series of interviews that Oliver Stone did with Vladimir Putin in the uh, early 2012, 2013, something like that. And what happened was that it was over a series of months, it was multiple interviews, and they're fascinating and, and, and brilliant because they reveal what Putin's motivations are. And his motivation is the Russian people. He doesn't care about foreign people. Uh, he considers the collapse of the Soviet Union a disaster not because the Soviet Union, the, the empire that was the Soviet Union collapsed. He considers it a disaster because uh, something like 40 million ethnic Russians, Orthodox Christian Russians, were suddenly left in foreign countries, in Kazakhstan, in Ukraine, in the Baltics, and what have you. And he, Vladimir Putin, self-consciously says that his mission is to safeguard the Russian people. He doesn't care about foreign people. And, and he wants the best interests of the uh, Russian diaspora in these adjacent countries to be looked after, but he's not interested in conquering their territory. And, and he made it very clear. And, and people should, you know, in something so serious, you should take people at their word. Yeah. And the Russian ambition is not territorial expansion. They've got plenty of territory of their own, plenty of natural resources. I, I once heard some fool say that what the re Russians really want is to capture, uh, you know, the um, Ukrainian uh, uh, agriculture resources and what have you. Why? Russia is already the largest producer of agricultural resources and energy resources. They don't need more. They, they've got an embarrassment of riches as it is. No, the Russian regime in, in the Kremlin wants to look after the best interests of the Russian people, but they don't have imperial ambitions. That was the bitter lesson of the Soviet Union. That's a lesson that the West doesn't understand that Russia learned or doesn't want to recognize that that's the lesson that Russia learned. So the propaganda is all over the place, you know. Most most uh, Swedes and Europeans and Americans, I guess, think that uh, Putin is going to lose the war. Ukraine have some problems, but everything we send will 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 make them win this fight, and and then it will be a flourishing uh, period again. Yeah, it'll be the land of milk and honey all over. Yeah, yeah but what, so, what is, know, it's, it's, why, it's, why are so few people thinking critically and for themselves? Well, because, you see, Ingrid, it's very simple. Uh, most people go along with the headline mm -hmm. because they have other things going on in their lives. They've got their kids, their job, you know, the, the weekend uh, soccer tournament or whatever. And so people go along with the headline. And, and, and quite frankly, few people are critical thinkers. And few people dig below the surface. And so they, they just go along with whatever is being told to them in the mainstream narrative, in the mainstream media. And the mainstream media has become completely captured by the governments. Mm. Because you see, uh, due to social media, which took away the ad revenue of so many uh, mainstream media sites, most mean, mainstream media sites in the West are financed by the government. 
that's how they stay afloat. Yeah. And so, of course, it, 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 it is against their interest to say something that the government doesn't like. And so they say what the government tells them to say. The mainstream news outlets, and, and I include Sweden in this, they are essentially propaganda outlets for the, uh, for the uh, government. Mm. And they regurgitate what the government tells them to regurgitate. And so it gives the majority of people a very, very false impression of what's going on because they only read the headlines. And so it's, it's as simple as that. I mean, you yourself, you, 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 with very little effort, you can find out the, how much government money is going to the Swedish television channels, the Swedish newspapers, you know, the Swedish news magazines and, and the big websites of, of these various outlets. And it's you'll brilliant. find it. It's, it's listed. It's, it's listed yeah. how much the governments give these yeah. outlets. And so, you know, if I'm paying you, you know, what are you going to say? Are you going to say that, oh, Gonzalo's, uh, you know, a nasty person and this and that? No, you're going to say, oh, Gonzalo, you know, he, he smells like roses. <laughs> yeah. He's wonderful. You know, this is how people work. Like, they are supposed you know, we, were, we were talking about the press and, and you were mm. asking, you know, why do the press people go along with all this nonsense? Well, because they, quite simply, they're whores. They're prostitutes. Uh, because they have, they have followed a profession that they thought that they would actually reveal things and they spent a lot of time in universities and invest a lot of time in their careers. But now they are at a point where they need the money from their profession and yet they have to lie in order to maintain their position. And it's as simple as that. And, and, and that's the tragedy of the situation. And that's why people like both of you ladies and, and I hope myself as well, we people in the dissident uh, citizen journalists, if you will, Mm. Uh, we're valuable precisely because we're not willing to, we don't have to uh, uh, sell our mm. souls. We can tell the truth. Mm. And the press, by definition, for the reasons I explained before, before we were interrupted by the internet outage, we uh, we don't depend on the government for money, so we can tell the truth. Oh, man. Now air raid sirens. Sorry. Oh, Hang on a moment. Let me just uh, yeah. close the window. <laughs> Hang on just a moment. Yeah, I, I, sorry about that. This is the best I can do insofar as uh, ameliorating the sound. But anyway, um, yeah, I, 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 we were talking about the press. Well, that's that's the problem. That it's it, it pays them to lie. Literally mm. pays them to lie, and so they lie. And that's why we left the mainstream media, both of us, because we couldn't stand that. Because that's yeah. why that's not why we became journalists. We became journalists to tell the truth, and yeah. we can't lie. Uh, so that is a tragedy. A, you know, Ingrid, I find it so much easier to always tell the truth because yeah. I don't have much to remember no, when I just tell exactly. the truth. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so you you maria always tells me you don't even try to lie ingrid because you can't because it shows in all your face when you try to lie so i never lie <laughs> True. Yeah. but, but, but the world is upside how, down how how do we do we have any chance of of you know waking people up because th there's there's the um uh, I mean, apart from the uh, mainstream media, there's also the big tech company who who are heavily involved in repressing free speech in every way they can. Now we have Elon Musk as the uh, head of uh, Twitter, and uh, he actually let you in uh, again on Twitter, which which uh, was a good thing. But but 
how do we reach people? Because like you say, most people only read the headlines and a lot of people only consume mainstream media. So how do we, how find, do we okay. reach them? My thinking is that the only way that we will have a true uh, reset and a cleanup is if the West collapses. That, that's the only way out. Uh, the only way out is through. And we have to go through a period where, it, and it will be unfortunately uh, several decades of just misery. And this is assuming, of course, that the war between China and the United States does not become a nuclear conflict. I think that the risk of the Ukraine conflict becoming nuclear is extremely low at this point, mm -hmm. because I think that most intelligent analysts in the West, and, and most of the, more importantly, most of the people in the military in the West, they recognize that the Ukraine proxy war is a lost cause. Yeah. And, you know, you, you keep hearing that they're sending tanks, right? But these tanks, they're saying, that, oh, we'll send them in a few months because it mm. takes time to train and so forth. And, and, and it does, by the way. It takes mm. years to train on these tanks. People think that getting on a tank is like driving a car. It's yeah. not. It's, it's extraordinarily complex, okay? And so the point is that um, not only are they sending these dribs and drabs of equipment, you know, it's going to take months. And so, you know... Uh, they recognize in the West, the Western militaries realize that the conflict in Ukraine is lost because the figures that I mentioned previously on at the start of the show, they are aware of these figures. They are aware of the lopsidedness of the losses because I mentioned just personnel, but across all weapons categories, the same kind of lopsided ratio is emerging. And so the possibility of this becoming a nuclear conflict, I think are low. I think that a high chance is that Poland will decide to take a piece of Ukraine, of Western mm -hmm. Ukraine, which the, the Polish leadership class is highly nationalistic and has wanted since the end of the Cold War to restart Poland as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a, a Polish empire, a dominant player in Central Europe. They want that very badly and they want that territory of Western Ukraine. It could be that the Poles decide unilaterally to go into the conflict with uh, Ukraine and take a chunk out of Ukraine. That, that's in the cards, by the way. Mm. Or, no, that's not in the cards per se, but it's a reasonable uh, uh, possibility because the Poles are making those noises. But the chance of it turning nuclear in Europe, I think, are very, very low at this time because it, it, the, the Russian victory is inevitable. And furthermore, there isn't going to be any kind of uh, um, negotiated settlement or some sort of ceasefire similar to what happened in the Korean conflict. And none of that will happen because the Russians don't trust the West anymore. No. Because the, the, the Europeans have shown themselves to be liars. That whenever yeah. the Minsk agreements, it's mm -hmm. emerged that from Francois Hollande, from Angela Merkel, from uh, Viktor Poroshenko and other European functionaries, uh, they've all said that it was entered fraudulently just to yeah. buy time to arm the Ukraine forces. And so if you have a counterparty whom you cannot trust, you're not going to make any agreement with them. And so the Russians are not going to accede to any ceasefire. They're going to take the entire country. And the only issue becomes whether Poland gets involved in this conflict. I hope for the sake of the Poles that they don't, because they're going to lose just as badly as the Zelensky regime. Mm. No. Yeah. Poland uh, is a NATO country. So what would that entail? It would break NATO because I think a lot of countries would not be in favor of Poland occupying Ukraine territories and taking it. 
because I think that the Polish calculation would be as follows. They um, declare Western Ukraine a Polish protectorate, that Poland will guarantee its protection and, and use that excuse to assimilate and, and take over and annex Western Ukraine. Mm. And the Poles would say, oh, but the Russians are attacking us, this Polish protectorate, which is Western Ukraine. And therefore, the rest of NATO has to come and save us. And I think a lot of NATO countries would say, no, we, this is a defensive pact. We're not going to subsidize uh, Polish annexation of Western Ukraine. I think that a lot of people would sort of like wake up to that. And I know that several governments, NATO governments, would not be interested in supporting Poland in a land grab for Western Ukraine. And so that could potentially break apart the NATO alliance. Mm. Because you see also there's something else too. See, an alliance um, is very difficult to hold together because each of the countries in an alliance has different priorities. It only works, an alliance only works when you have one clear enemy. But NATO has not had one clear enemy and has had to manufacture Russia as the <laughs> yeah. enemy. And, and so the thing is, see, if Poland invades uh, Western uh, Ukraine, then a lot of the members would say, no, that's not in our best interest at all. And we want no part of that. Certainly the Germans would not be in favor of it. They wouldn't want some revanchist Poland in their, as their next door neighbor. And so, you know, the alliance might fall apart. The alliance as it is, is creaking. And so, and you see the, the, how it's creaking because so few of the countries want to give weapons to the Ukraine cause because they realize, number one, it's a lost cause. And number two, it does not serve their interests. And, so, and I saw just a couple of hours ago, I read a story that uh, the biggest party in uh, uh, Austria, FPÖ, they just gone out and said that we have to stop this uh, stupid sanctions. We are the only one that is suffering. Our people is suffering because of it. The economy is going down and everything. So yeah. I think, what if NATO fell? What if the EU fell apart? That would be great yeah. news. <laughs> well, actually, it wouldn't. Uh, uh, it, 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 because what happens is that, see, European prosperity has depended on three factors over the last uh, you know, 40 odd years. Uh, number one, the ability of the Western uh, European nations to spend so little on the military and depend on mm -hmm. the American security umbrella. Yeah. Number two, uh, cheap consumer goods, especially from China, but also the global south generally because of globalization. And number three, cheap Russian energy. Mm. Now, the Russians, they are not going to be shipping cheap energy to Europe anytime soon, and probably never more. I mean, quite apart from the Nord Stream pipelines, which were destroyed by the Americans, or the Americans and the Brits, or the Americans and the Brits and the Poles, mm. we'll never know for sure, but it was certainly no. an idea of the Americans. Huh? Mm. Well, the Russians, number one, they can't send uh, you know, cheap gas through Nord Stream and some of the other pipelines as well. And they won't want to because they have customers in India and China. You know, the uh, oil exports to India have gone up over tenfold in the last year. Uh, India is becoming one of their primary uh, consumers of energy resources. And so they don't need European customers anymore. They have the Indians. And the Russians are going to continue supplying India with oil and natural gas and not send it to Europe because the Indian, because by giving energy resources to the Indians, they, the Russians form a much closer alliance to the Indians, which is more to their strategic advantage 
than forming an alliance with the Europeans who have openly said that they hate the Russians and want them all dead. And so, I mean, if somebody tells you, I want you dead and I hate you and I hate everything that you are, mm. are you going to want to trade with them? No, no. of course not. No. And so, you know, the, the, the Europeans made their bed and they're going to have to sleep in it. And European um, decline, economic and ultimately political, is it, it already happened. Okay, so even if Austria, say, a landlocked country in the middle of Europe, Mm. We're to say, no, we're not going to do these sanctions anymore. We want to be friends with Russia. That's not going to change anything insofar as the Russians are concerned. And they're not going to even think about Austria. They don't care anymore. Because So why do you think that Merkel, why did she suddenly confess that it was all a scam, the Minsk agreement? Oh, it's very easy. Because Angela Merkel is not a woman who has ever had any kind of principles whatsoever. She is a political creature who says whatever is necessary uh, and and maintains strategic ambiguity so as to please the most number of people so as to maintain power. But she doesn't want to do, and she never wanted to do anything specifically with the power that she had. She just wanted to remain in power. And so um, after the, uh, the, uh, the invasion, she wanted to shore up her reputation in Germany. And so she said this. Now, whether... I mean, I actually think that at the time of the Minsk agreements, she was sincere, but she has found it politically expedient now to say, oh, no, it was just a ruse. Mm. Mm. I, I think that, you know, because she's a woman of no principle. I mean, I personally despise her. I despise all of the political leadership of the West because all of them are the same. They, yep. they don't have they are not people of one line and their word counts for nothing. And, and, you know, whatever they try to do, it's only to maintain their power. They are not interested in the welfare of their own people. No. And th- that's the thing that... In contrast to Putin. Are... Yeah, because it, it, it's very funny. There was a, a saying about de Gaulle that uh, de Gaulle was a cynic about everything except the French nation and the French people. Mm. Um, Putin is very, very much like that. He's a cynic about everything except the Russian nation and the Russian people. He genuinely mm. wants the welfare of the Russian people. It's also very indicative of something. See, Putin, people don't know this about him. And, and it goes not just for Putin, but all of the leadership class of the Kremlin today, is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Putin, even though he was a KGB officer, he had to work as a taxi driver in order to make money in, to wow. feed his family. You know, he, he was very poor. Because all of Russia was poor. And, and the same goes for a lot of the senior functionaries in, in uh, Russia today. And so they had to have a great deal of extended contact with the average Russian person. And they have a much better feel for the Russian people than the Western leadership classes do. I mean, you were talking to me about the Wallenbergs and, and, and the uh, leadership class in Sweden. I mean, have any of them ever gone to Malmo, to one of the no-go zones in Malmo? Uh, where all the immigrants are, where all well, the it happens, uh, you know, once every third year, and then they have a whole range of, you know, police officers and journalists around them. They would never go there by their own just to talk to people and find out how they have things. No, of course, because your leadership class in Sweden, I mean, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of your leadership class at all, but because it's the same in all of the West, mm. your leadership class despises your own people. Yeah. They despise you mm. because they look at you as the hoi polloi, the little people. And and we are the elite and we get to exploit them 
and use them to our advantage. And if we don't like how they vote, we just bring in foreign people to vote the way yeah. we want them to vote. Yeah. They don't care about the Swedish people. And, and, and come on, the, the, the way that the Swedish leadership class has acted insofar as Sweden is concerned over the last uh, 20, 30 years, can you honestly tell me that that's a leadership class that cares about the well-being of the people? No, not at all. Not at all. No. Now, uh, now we have this new government that we have some hopes of, but we just found out that the social democrats who have been ruling Sweden for most of, of uh, you know, the last hundred years, uh, they just found we just found out that they have these these criminal gangster uh, types in the party that they they had a lot of new members and they kicked out the woman who was uh, the chairman in one uh, municipality and that proves what we have been saying for many years now that the social democrats they are not a party anymore they are a mafia they've no. just you know they, they the only thing they want is to be in power so that that's why they didn't do anything about the criminality that's why they didn't do anything about all the cheating with uh, with um subsidiaries and all that because it's their voters no. they don't want to make these people upset so just let mm. them shoot each other let them have steal millions and billions of our tax money as long as we are in power but now they're not now they're kicked yeah, out but, yeah the thing is you see it's a disaster for the west and and the only way to clean this slate is to let it all fall apart i'm mixing my metaphors but i think you know what i mean yeah uh, mm. because the the the, the, the I'm a man of the West. I was, uh, you know, I'm Chilean uh, by family, uh, but all of my cultural inheritance is of the West. I, I, I trace a straight lineage from uh, the culture of Santiago all the way back to the Greeks uh, by way of Spain and by way of the Roman Empire. You know, I mean, I, I am a man of the West culturally. Mm. Um, and I see this catastrophe that is befalling the West as number one, self-inflicted, and number two, I don't see a way out of it, any any kind of realistic way, because uh, the leadership elite, the leadership class has become professionalized and detached from the people. They no longer represent the people. And so the only way forward is for there to be a generalized economic political collapse and to rebuild from the ruins. Uh, but I think that it's going to be a great deal of suffering for the West, uh, Sweden included. Sweden is not immune from this. No, and I, I don't see any other outcome. And the thing that really makes me very nervous are all of these immigrant people, because these people are, um, uh, they are going to be the ones who create the most social disturbance, mm. because this isn't what they signed up for. A, a generalized collapse of Europe is not what these immigrant people signed up for. They thought that they were going to go to the land of milk and honey. And all of a sudden that milk and honey is all dried up. And so they're going to protest, they're going to riot, they're going to cause all kinds of destruction. And it will be up to the various people of Europe to decide how they're going to handle this. I personally don't think it's going to be a very pretty sight because I think that inevitably what will happen, and this isn't something I'm looking forward to, but it seems the direction of travel. If there is a widespread economic collapse of Europe, which seems in the cards, um, I think that, you know, you will see a rise of hardcore ethnic nationalism mm -hmm. that will want to displace and kick out 
the foreign uh, population, which will be causing so much disturbance. And a lot of people will agree because they'll say, yeah, I, I want some peace and quiet. I don't want these migrants to destroy what little we have left after this generalized economic collapse. You see, and, and I think that it could get extremely ugly in Europe. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, Europe has experience with, with periods of enormous social unrest that devolved into ethnic cleansing and, and just persecution, widesc widespread, wide-scaled uh, persecution of foreign peoples. It, it's happened before. There's no reason to think that it can happen again in Europe. And so, of course, my, and you said we have we have maybe ten uh, percent foreign born. I think it's more. It's it's more than thirty percent who have some kind of background in a foreign country, and in the younger generations in many cities, the foreign the foreigners, if we just call them that, uh, second generation and so on, they are in a majority. Swedes are already in a minority in the young generation in lots of Swedish cities that's why i moved out into the countryside yeah and 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 what ha has happened is that see the political leadership found it more advantageous to insist that all women work mm. and not have babies mm -hmm. and simply mm -hmm. import foreign workers they found it easier more politically expedient especially for the capitalists because people tend to uh, misunderstand the the people who drove feminism were actually, especially second and third wave feminism, were not women. They were the corporations. Mm -hmm. The corporations wanted to import yeah. more foreign workers to keep the cost of labor down. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's why they incentivized women not to have children or to have as few as possible, you know, because of climate change, because, you know, you, you want to live your best life and all the rest of it. And because of that, you have a declining um, uh, native demographic and a rise in foreign-born um, dem demographics mm -hmm. that are incompatible with a lot of these European nations. I mean, you guys are seeing it for yourselves in Sweden. No. The so, problem, Gonzalo, it, in Sweden is that they they, they don't work. <laughs> Many of them, they're all on yeah. Welfare. That's the funny part. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the funny yeah. part. So 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 that that plan failed miserably. I mean, I, I suppose in the sixties, when when Sweden was uh, you know an industrial. Uh, nation uh, with many simple jobs like you know uh, uh, I don't know uh, yeah, factory worker street street sweeper yeah what have you exactly yeah the, then then it might might have worked but Sweden is an is, is a high tech country you know uh, from the at least from the nineties on you have to have a, a degree to be a, a cleaner you know yeah uh, so. So, so that plan certainly did, didn't work out. But like Ingrid said before, I think the Social Democrats they they painted themselves uh, into a corner because they ne now needed those people to vote for them to yeah. stay in power. So yeah, keep. Well, I remember in our last conversation, I I told you about the Chilean diaspora that went to Sweden. No. Yeah, that they were the criminal element. Yeah. You know, and and they left. You know, Sweden opened its doors to everybody who was persecuted by the Pinochet dictatorship. Mm. And who took them up on that offer? All the criminals took them up on that offer. You know, I mean, mm. I, I myself have never had the good fortune to go to Sweden as of yet. Uh, but uh, if I were to go to Sweden, I'd never mention a soul that I'm from Chile because they'd automatically assume, <laughs> oh, he's a criminal because that's what Sweden imported. And, yeah, you know, but you know, you know. It, 
no one talks about the Chileans. Now it's all about the Arabs and, you know, all of those, the Afghans. And so I think it would blend in perfectly well. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I have have another uh, question, uh, Gonzalo, uh, concerning the, um, the, uh, the, the war. I mean, what do you see happening over over is it going to drag on for years and years or no. or a few months or what do you see happening you know in I would be very surprised if this conflict is still ongoing by the end of the year okay yeah. by okay. the end of 2023 okay. and how uh, will it yeah. end i mean yeah, that, what, that's what the will question. happen to zelensky for for example and his regime what oh, i i'm assuming people... that they will flee the country you know I, yeah. I i i think that they'll probably flee the country and uh, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll say something else here. Um, Zelensky is supposed to go uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, to Brussels. To some he's in London summit. now. He's in London right now. He's in London? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I saw okay. pictures with him and Rishi Sunak. They were hugging. Really? <laughs> oh, because I, I haven't caught up on the news yet. Oh, I would be very surprised if he returns to Ukraine. Aha. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think because the situation is that dire right now, militarily speaking, I, I would be surprised, you know. Who knows? I mean, I, I could be completely wrong. But I, I would, I, if we're if we're putting money on the table, you know, I, I'd give odds of one out of two that he doesn't return. Mm. And I'd be willing to put money on it, you know. Uh, because um, I, I'm not going to discuss the, the particulars of the internal Ukraine uh, political situation at this time because it just wouldn't be particularly smart of me to do so being here in Ukraine. Mm. But I would be extremely surprised, you know, considering all the movements that have gone on in Kiev insofar yeah. as personnel changes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Seems like he has lost all his friends. The West wants something. And and I think that they're the ones who will decide you are not going back, Zelensky. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. But uh, but I I, I um, uh, it, it, it's to go back to your original question. How when will this end? Probably by before the end of the year. When specifically, I could not tell you. In what conditions? I think that the Russians' intent is to capture the entirety of the Ukraine territory. Their enormous army that I mentioned before, Mm. it doesn't make any sense to assemble such a large army unless you intend to occupy the entire country. Mm. That's the only reason it would make complete sense. Um, And so I think that that, I don't think that the Russians wanted this by any stretch of the imagination. And I think too also that the Russians themselves miscalculated in the sense that I thought I think that they believed before the conflict that they that their economy really would be crippled by sanctions, but mm. they decided to pull the trigger anyway and go ahead with this invasion. And I think that they are incredibly surprised that their economy has survived so well. Mm. Even the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which is a Western organization, of course, mm. they are saying that the uh, Russian economy is going to be fine in 2023, and the sanctions will do absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, and, and last year, their GDP uh, only shrank by 2.3%. Whereas at the beginning of the conflict, when the sanctions were first imposed, they were saying that it was going to shrink by 20 to 30%. And so I think that the Russians themselves are surprised by how resilient the Russian economy is. And I think that they're also surprised how well things are going for them. 
I think that at the start of this conflict, their ambitions were very reduced. They just want in, an implementation of the Minsk agreements. But now that they're in it, they're in it to win it. And they're going to go all the way. And uh, I think that the only, uh, you know, wild card in this situation is Poland. Mm -hmm. What Poland will do and what Poland will be allowed to get away with by its NATO allies. And that's mm -hmm. the only question at this time. Yeah, right. But will will Putin really uh, have all these Western Ukrainians that hate Russians? Uh, he will have maybe a guerrilla war. They're very good at at dealing with insurgencies. They proved that in Chechnya, and they proved that in Syria. They know how to handle insurgents, especially insurgents who are culturally much more similar to them than the Chechens mm. or the Syrians. And so I, I don't think that they're going to have much of a problem insofar as insurgency. They'll know how to handle it. Okay, And the, the, the way they're going to handle it is going to be fairly brutal and fairly effective. But, you know, that's what you have to do when you want to nip insurgency and, and not have it become a cancer. Uh, they're going to know how to handle it. And I think also you have to keep in mind something else, that a lot of the... Um, the extremists in Ukraine, they hate the Poles just as much as they hate the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so it could be, and, and this is something that I've argued since April, it could be that the Russians deliberately give a slice of Western Ukraine to Poland, and this would accomplish several tasks at once. Number one, if they were to give the, a Western slice of Ukraine, including the city of Lviv, up to say, Ternopil, they gave that territory to Poland, it would cause enormous political conflict within Europe because all of a sudden the European borders, which were supposed to be sacrosanct, now they become malleable and flexible. And there are a lot of different ethnic conflicts within Europe, even today, where the borders, I mean, a lot of people would like to see that some of those borders change. And so mm. if the Russians were to give a slice of Ukraine to the Poles and have, it, have the Poles annex it, it would cause enormous political chaos in Europe Number one. Number two, um, the Russians would simply dump all the extremists in this area by basically driving them out, persecuting them out of the captured Ukraine that the Russians would have mm -hmm. and driving them into Western Ukraine, into this area next by Poland. And all of a sudden, these extremists, these nationalists, these crazy people would become Poland's problem, not the Russians. And see... It would actually solve a lot of problems for the Russians to create, to annex outright all the territory east of the Dnieper River, including Odessa and Transnistria, create a rump Ukraine state from, say, Kiev all the way to Ternopil to the west, and then everything from Ternopil, including Lviv, give it to the Poles, deliberately give it to the Poles as a poison pill and make it become their problem. Uh, that would be a very clever solution for the Russians. And they would have this rump Ukraine state between Poland and Russia. Mm. And this rump Ukraine state would be uh, led by some strongman, perhaps uh, Medvedchuk, perhaps yep. uh, Yanukovych, who's still around in Moscow. He's still mm. alive and kicking. Perhaps some other third figure. It doesn't really matter. But this new leader of this rump Ukraine state, which would be impoverished and depopulated, well, that Ukraine state would be very friendly and docile to the Russians. It would be a buffer state. Mm. And so I think that that might be a very clever solution that the Russians come up with. And the Russians, if anything, they are a clever people. They know what they're doing. 
And so, um, you know, I think that a lot of options are on the table, but the ultimate final political shape of Ukraine, it remains to be seen because there are too many variables. There are different options, but there are too many variables. But one thing that is indisputable is that the Russians are winning and they are going to take all of Ukraine because they will never agree to any kind of ceasefire agreement with the West because not only is the West agreement incapable, as the Russians say, but also if they create a ceasefire, uh, say a ceasefire agreement with the Dnieper River as the new border, then this rump Ukraine state would be dominated by NATO and would be rearmed and there'd be another conflict in a few yeah. years. The Russians want a permanent solution to this problem. And so they're not going to agree to any kind of ceasefire. They're going to go all the way. That's what I think. Okay. At this time, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, uh, Gonzalo. What's uh, what's next for you? Uh, are you going to stay in Ukraine uh, after the oh, war sure. ends? Or yeah. Oh, yeah, I have no intention of leaving. You know, I love no. Kharkov. I, I, yeah. it's, it's a great town, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to. Uh, I want for the people to come back and and to see what happens. I, I do believe it's more likely than not that Kharkov will become part of Russia again because Kharkov is historically a Russian city. And so we, we will see how it all ends. And I just, you know, I mean, I, I feel myself very lucky because I have front row seats to the Third World War <laughs> right in the middle of this conflict. So, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just going to see what happens and stay put and watch it all unfold. Yeah, great talk, Gonzalo. I hope we can do My this pleasure. again soon because all so many things are happening all the time and it's so lovely to talk to you and hear your thoughts and ideas. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Maria, Ingrid, it's a real pleasure. And uh, I hope you had a good show, audience. I hope that you guys enjoyed the show. Certainly. Take care of yourself, Gonzalo. See you soon. Bye. God bless. <laughs>